Let's ask God uh, to help us now with his word. Uh, Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, sex is a big and preoccupying issue for many in our society. And often uh, we also feel deeply uh, sexual desire. Uh, We pray in your mercy that we would understand your word tonight and see the goodness of your instruction. And you would move us by your spirit to want to live according to your word. Uh, We pray also that uh, where we have sexual sin, you would give us grace to repent of that and know your forgiveness. Our Father, give us understanding and conviction and help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Everything everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, who would own that slogan, everything is? is permissible for me. I am free to do anything I want, at least as we see from the context that you heard in 1 Corinthians 6, as least, at least as it relates to sexual expression. Now, this is a Corinthian slogan. Uh, there's no version of Christian freedom taught by Paul that would suggest that people are free for sexual immorality. It's a Corinthian slogan. So who would own this slogan? Everything is permissible for me. And the answer in Roman Corinth, because Corinth was a Roman colony, the answer in Roman Corinth is men, not women, free men of a certain class, not slaves. And as we look at what was permitted free men in Corinth, we actually see that the issue goes well beyond what we might consider the prostitution described in verse 15, where Paul says, so should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute. It goes far beyond the issue of men visiting brothels, although this is included for these same men were completely confident that you could visit brothels without stigma. You see, at the heart of social life for Roman men, after they'd reached the age of maturity, after they'd taken on what was called the toga virilis, a suggestive name, hey, at about the age of 18, at the heart of their social life were banquets, either as social occasions or as part of the activity of guilds, trade guilds, and their sacrifices in idol temples. And these banquets involved eating and drinking, and also what really uh, Winter calls promiscuous after dinners. So after, as it were, the plates had been cleared away, they moved into another stage of activity where for the men sexual activity was not only permitted but encouraged with slaves or prostitutes brought in for the occasion or even higher-class courtesans. Uh, these, open, these after dinners were not open to wives, 
whose sexual activity was very strictly governed. Wives were meant to be virgins when married and chaste, devoted to their husband within marriage. And so there was in Corinth a group of men who reckoned that they were free to have we might what we might call casual and recreational sex, by choice and convention free, as often as they wanted, as long as it wasn't with the wives of other Roman men or their as yet unmarried virgin daughters. Now, this sexual promiscuity was not only socially approved, but supported by a worldview with two key features. And you see them in verse 13a. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will do away with both of them. <laughs> this is the way they reasoned. Food's a natural appetite that should be satisfied and that satisfaction is pleasurable. It's a good thing. In the same way, sex is a natural appetite and bodily function and it's to be enjoyed for its satisfaction is pleasurable because, and this is the first part of their worldview in a sense, their belief, nature intends the enjoyment of life. That's in a sense what we're made for. And you also see that the second part of their worldview, the body is not the permanent part of us. You see, they believe the soul was the eternal bit, and that was separable from the body, which was our material prison for this life. And that what happened to the body didn't really affect the soul. So in this view, satisfying your sexual appetite has no abiding significance and no moral significance. Everything is permissible for me. A view supported by a philosophy that said, nature intends the enjoyment of life, and that the soul and the body are separate with the body perishing, but the soul continuing unaffected by the body's conduct. And the result? Casual and recreational sex allowed for these men. Everything is permissible. Now, does that sound familiar? Well, it ought to be, for the situation for men is not much different in Melbourne today. But in Melbourne, like much of the Western world, there's even more. Sexual freedom has been intensified, democratised and politicised. And sex has been made more accessible through changing social customs and things like online porn and other technologies. So, in a sense, this drive for sexual freedom has been intensified. And I'm going to use some quotes here from Carl Truman's book that I referenced last week to summarise, I think, actually what we know, in a sense, what we experience all the time. And so Truman, as he's thinking about how these views, this sexual freedom has developed, writes of how Freud has provided the West with a compelling myth. This is a myth that our Western society kind of embraces. The idea that sex, in terms of sexual desire and sexual fulfilment, is the real key to human existence, to what it means to be human. And Freud's also supplied us with the idea that the happiness we all seek is to be found in sexual pleasure, identified with sexual pleasure, and that you can't be happy without sexual fulfilment. And so this gives a, a, a central idea that human beings are at core sexual, 
and that what and that that shapes our thinking and our behaviour in profound, often unconscious ways. That this idea is actually seeped in to our imagining of the world. So a demand for sexual freedom is intensified in our society. For when you're talking about sex, you're not just talking about an activity, you're talking about identity, about what it means to be human. And the prescription of sexual codes is now either seen and judged by whether they facilitate or frustrate that freedom because, well, that's either facilitating or frustrating someone's humanity. So the demand for sexual freedom has been intensified. And in our society, sexual freedom has also been democratised to embrace men and women. And there are two kind of things, more than two, but two prominent things that have promoted that. Firstly is technology, the pill, uh, and therefore the prevention, the possibility of prevention of unwanted pregnancy, which was a break on sexual activity, but also the philosophy of feminism, where some proponents... So second wave feminism viewed marriage as a patriarchal structure of oppression from which women needed to be freed. And for them, the best way of doing that was to overcome the sexual code that restricted sex to marriage. You see, for equality between men and women, the same sexual freedoms and the same expectations have to be women's as well as men's. So everything is permissible is now the cry in our society of both men and women who can engage like men now in and uh, engage in and initiate recreational uncommitted sex. And if you don't believe that, you just have not been watching TV, right? Uh, right. And thirdly, it's actually been politicised. Uh, we touched on this last week, so just a quote from Truman. Society now intuitively associates associate sexual freedom with political freedom because the notion that in a very deep sense we are defined by our sexual desires is something that has penetrated all levels of our culture. Everything is permissible for me. Intensified, democratised, politicised. It's everyone's slogan now. And everything is available to me. That's right, isn't it? Sex is more accessible than ever. You can get it on your movies, on free-to-air TV, in the soapies, people having affairs, jumping in and out of bed with each other, reality TV shows. Porn is much more accessible, as we all know, on the web, even on our phones. There are apps that are mainly designed to promote sexual encounters, like Grindr. And all kinds of sexual expression are available to be had without any expectation of commitment. Sex is a weekend recreation. And as in first century Roman Corinth, this assertion of sexual freedom has philosophical underpinnings, eloquently summarised by the slogan on my workmate's mug. I had a workmate in student services in, his, in Wagga and he had a favourite mug, and on the mug was written, life's a bitch and then you die. Right, and that is a very eloquent summary because what it's saying is there's nothing more than this life. And life is short and it can be tough, so make it as pleasurable as possible. Have a good time because after that you rot. Nothing survives death. 
And because this life is all there is, that means there's no transcendent values, no higher purpose, no intrinsic meaning to your life, and you're accountable to no one else. So make the most of your life and don't let external codes stop you from getting pleasure, from getting happiness where you can. So you are free to do anything you want. As long as, in my friend's philosophy, you don't hurt anyone else, Whatever that means, however it's measured, whatever the time frame, it's pretty vague actually. But as far as sex goes, anything goes, as long as it feels right for you. Everything is permissible to me. A slogan supported by a potent mix of sexual acceptance, uh, social acceptance, desire and cultural assumptions that not only permit but positively encourage, affirm sexual expression in whatever state and stage of life you're in. Now, Paul knows their slogan. Everything is permissible for me, but he disagrees. He warns, doesn't he, that there are other considerations. Not everything is beneficial I will not be mastered by everything. There are better questions for believers to ask, questions that imply that sexual promiscuity is destructive and enslaving. And then verse 13, Paul decides to take on the social consensus. And note the way he does it here in 1 Corinthians 6. Oh, he disagrees with their behaviour, their sexual immorality. He's actually already said that in verses 9 to 11. But he doesn't... Just, he doesn't just say, stop it. And he doesn't argue from bad consequences, though he hints at them. I will not be mastered by anything, hinting at the reality that people can become enslaved, addicted to their sexual desire and activities. And we know that, don't we, people? Enslaved to porn. And, of course, there are other bad consequences from this casual approach to sex. Growing loneliness, unstable relationships, children growing up in insecure households. But he doesn't argue from bad consequences. Instead, he asks these Corinthians first to think differently, to have their understanding of the world and what they do with their bodies in the world shaped by the gospel that Jesus is Lord. And then thinking differently, he calls on them to act differently, reminding them all the time of what they should know as believers. You see, the distinctive sexual ethic of Christians, an ethic at odds with what was accepted in the first century Roman Corinth and 21st century Melbourne, comes from what is at the core of the Christian message. It's not an add-on, it's not an optional extra, it's not a weird historical appendix left over from previous generations, mainly the Victorians, because we all know that they were all caught up, you know, don't we? It's not a historical appendix that can be removed without great loss. It's actually an expression of the gospel. And we need to see this, firstly, for our own conviction, but also to engage with our society, because as Truman writes, when we address matters of sexual morality, we're actually addressing questions about the nature and purpose of human beings, the definition of happiness and the relationship between the individual and the wider society and between men and women. The Christian sexual ethic 
can address those matters when it speaks of sexual morality because the Christian sexual ethic has always been embedded in and an expression of that wider framework of reality. But let's look at Paul's argument to those who believe everything is permissible. Food is for the stomach and the stomach's for food and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So you think about that. The Lord for the body. He's referring to the incarnation and its importance in the body. It's in the body that the Lord has won his victory over death and ensured the resurrection of our bodies, the Lord for the body. And in the body, the bodies for the Lord, we give visible expression to that victory he won in the body, that he is Lord by our bodily obedience in this age. We have embodied life because of God's purposes for his son, that he have a people redeemed by his death and be Lord of all. And God's purpose embraces the resurrection of our bodies. Verse 14, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. It's not you die and then you just rot. Your body is of eternal significance, has an eternal future in continuity with this present embodied existence. What you do in the body matters for eternity. Because Christ has been raised bodily, so will his people be, raised bodily to eternal life. And Paul will speak more about that when he gets to 1 Corinthians 15. But your body matters for eternity. More, says St Paul. He wants us to know, expects us to know, that our relationship with Christ changes not just our future, our embodied future, but it also changes our embodied present. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? First scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We are now, if we are believers, united with Christ by faith. And this is not just an idea. It's a reality brought about by now sharing Christ's spirit. Anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. <coughs> we have received Christ's spirit. That's a reality. Paul can speak of that reality, Galatians 2, in these terms. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. United with him, one with him in spirit, we cannot take what is his, a part of Christ's body, our body, standing for our whole self, a part of Christ's body, and join it with a prostitute. As the resurrection shows the significance of our bodies, union with Christ means union with a prostitute, any sexually immoral union, is incompatible with belonging to the Lord Jesus. It's actually a grotesque and offensive idea, isn't it, to join a part of Christ's body, the Holy One, 
in a union condemned by the holy God. But Paul says the nature of created sexual union means that is what is happening when a Christian man has sex with a prostitute. For scripture says the two will become one flesh. He's referring there, in a sense, to the intimacy-creating design of sexual intercourse from the beginning. Paul turns to the Old Testament, to Genesis 2.24, you see, to correct their understanding of sex. Their view of sex, that you could have casual, uncommitted sex, was not informed by the Creator, by his purpose in creating humanity as male and female, distinct and complementary in their bodies, complementary embodiment that's designed to find and express unity in sexual union. And that unity is not meant to be transient or casual, but to take place within and help form and express a permanent relationship. That is God's design for our complementary sexual being. Such a union with a prostitute, a casual union, would be unfaithful to the union already created by receiving the Spirit from Christ. And that spiritual union, verse 17, on the model of God's design for our physical union, calls for faithfulness and purity, single-minded, exclusive devotion to the one to whom we're united, the Lord Jesus. See, knowing what the gospel says of the significance of our bodies and knowing that we are spiritually united with Christ Paul then draws from these truths, these truths we have embraced when we believe the gospel, his first behavioural response, our first way of expressing the reality of who we are as believers in the Lord Jesus. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Notice that, flee. It is clear, direct and urgent, isn't it? Flee sexual immorality. And here he uses the word pornea. He's actually talking about all sex outside marriage, everything that's kind of condemned in Leviticus 18. And that, of course, includes, and we need to say this in our age, pornography. Remember our Lord said in Matthew 5, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. Now that's exactly what porn is about, looking at a woman with lust. So porn is sin and porn is not harmless. Another quote, this one I actually got on the slides. Feminists saw porn, accurately in my judgment, this is Mona Charon in Truman, as a degradation of women. Yet they always interpret life through the narrow lens of women's oppression by men, which prevents them from seeing that it is, that its harm is to human dignity and not just to women as a class. Porn encourages immorality because it treats people as means, not ends, which is exactly what casual sex does. Porn is, in a sense, the logical endpoint of the sexual revolution because it completes the separation of sex from love and relationships. 
Sexual release is commodified, packaged and sold. The right to pleasure may be assured 24-7, but it carries with it the debasement of human beings, all human beings, men and women. Right, Because remember, God's design, Genesis 2.24, is that sex should never be separated from love and a relationship of permanence between a man and a woman. So says St Paul, because we're informed by the truth of the gospel, we flee sexual immorality. So you don't toy with it. You don't push the boundaries by seeing how far you can go before you do something that's really bad. That's like trying to balance on the edge of the cliff. You know, you get closer and closer and, of course, the only way you know you've gone too far is when you splat at the bottom. That is not wise, okay? Some, some say, oh, you can't condemn anything unless you've tried it, they say. Oh, how can, how can you say? You've never... Well, that doesn't really work, does it? What about murder? Would they suggest that if you're about to murder them? What about theft it was, if it was their property that you're going to take? I mean, you can't condemn something unless you've tried it. Is the drug dealer's line as they try and make you into a new market. It's actually just a form of seduction. And Paul goes on, so flee sexual immorality because, he says, there is a troubling uniqueness to sexual sin. Every sin, he says, said, that, that a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. You see, it's not saying sexual sin is more serious than other sins, saying more worthy of judgment than greed or lying or pride or murder. But it is saying that sexual sin does to the believer unique damage. You see, no other sin has the effect that Paul describes in verse 16. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? You say, what does that do? Well, that's sinning against our redeemed body, our body united with Christ. It's tearing apart what should be one and frustrating the spiritual intimacy we should have with Christ, which is why it's so often accompanied by the sense of distance and coldness in our relationship to the Lord Jesus. Sex uniquely bodily joining can be uniquely bodily defying. Putting our bodies under the mastery of something other than our Lord and separating us from him. So that's our first response. Flee from sexual immorality. And here's our Second response, informed by our reality. Don't you know, says St Paul, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. Paul gives believers two ways of thinking about ourselves that says sexual immorality has no place in our life. The first image is of the temple, the second of slavery. He says, don't you know that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, I hope you feel the wonder of that. This is God's Holy Spirit. 
that Paul says has now come to dwell with believers. That's actually talking about the extraordinarily powerful cleansing work of the death of Jesus, that the Holy God could come and live with you, dwell in you. And, and, and the presence of the Spirit in us is the great gift of the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, the presence of the Spirit is assurance of relationship, crying, Abba, Father, in our hearts. It's the assurance of our resurrection, the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. It's our hope of growing into Christ-likeness. The presence of the Spirit means Christians should think of themselves as the temple, the temple of God. God's temple is holy. And think of our thinking of yourself as the temple of the Spirit carries an expectation, doesn't it, of holiness, of not doing anything that would defile God's temple. As It speaks of our bodies as the place where only what pleases God should be done. And it actually carries a warning about what we do. Remember 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul has spoken of the church collectively as the temple of God's spirit. And he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. Being the temple of the Holy Spirit also carries a warning about how God will think about you defiling the dwelling place of his spirit. So this is the believer's reality, says St Paul, and it should probably trouble you and drive you to Christ. Because it's actually saying if you're a believer, you are living in the presence of the Holy God. When you think you're alone, God's with you, sees what you see. So would you look at what's defiling to him, what's hateful to him? Oh, he hears the words you speak. Would you speak lies in his presence like this is so good, feels so good, it must be right? Spirit's with you. He sees what you see. He hears the words you speak. See, the presence of the Spirit, says Paul, means we should live holy lives in fear and trembling. For every believer dwells in the presence of God, for God's Spirit dwells in them. And so that reality should influence you. It should influence you, say, more than the thought you might have to confess something to some kind of accountability group or whatever you're dealing to help you using to help you deal with your sexual immorality, right? It should influence you, shouldn't it? You can always lie to the accountability group because you probably lied to yourself already about what you're doing. But you cannot lie to the Spirit of God. And if you're a believer, God's Spirit dwells in you. And the second image that Paul introduces to the Corinthians is the image of slavery. You were bought with a price, you are not your own. Paul uses the language of slavery here, and of course that's very offensive to us who so prize our freedom and autonomy. Because to be a slave is to be there to do your master's will and only his will. 
But even though the Corinthians had a better knowledge of slavery, this wasn't a wholly offensive image to them because the prestige and status of a slave depended on whose slave you were. The emperor's domestic slaves, for example, were actually regarded as a privileged group. And the Corinthians also knew a good master assumed responsibility for the daily needs and welfare of his slaves. To be God's slaves, purchased at such a great price as Jesus' death, was actually a great honour and a source of eternal security. But the Corinthians also understood the reality of slavery and so the point of Paul's image here. Paul is saying that to be a Christian is to belong to Jesus, to know that body and soul, you are there to do his will and you're expected to show him exclusive loyalty and faithfulness because the essence of slavery is to be given over 100%, your whole person, to doing the will of your master and to know that you're accountable to him for everything you do in every part of life. See, Paul's saying God has a right to expect us, purchased with the blood of his son, to do what he says. And our goal as those who are his, who have been given an eternal future by him, is to bring him honour, to glorify him with our bodies. We are to live for him with the bodies he has given us, the bodies he will raise. That is, of course, in all our lives. But in this context, especially bringing him glory by exercising the self-control that only uses his good gift of sexuality as he commands in the context for which he's created it, marriage between a man and a woman. Anything else is the porneia, the sexual immorality where to flee from. And that sexual immorality is uniquely destructive for believers. It dishonours the presence of God's spirit in us and is faithless and disloyal to him who has bought us for himself, secured our eternity at the cost of the death of his son. It denies the gospel realities of Christ's incarnation, that the body's for the Lord and the Lord for the body, of his resurrection which secures our resurrection and of our union with Christ, that we are one in spirit with him. So believers flee from sexual immorality and live to glorify Christ. Now let's try and pull this together and I want to talk to two groups and I want to say three things to each. So firstly, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I want to talk to you. You actually might be appalled by what I've said, appalled by this restriction of freedom, the imposition of a sexual code that in your view will only produce guilt and fear, that's a narrative of oppression. Well, hopefully you've seen that this sexual code is not isolated, but based on the Christian worldview, an expression of the truth of the gospel, the Christian gospel in our embodied lives. And, and that actually is a narrative in the end, not of oppression, but of freedom, of freedom from sin and death, a narrative of hope, of peace with the living God. And the issue in you being appalled that you have to consider is, is the world as you believe it to be, 
Or has Jesus been raised from the dead? You may never have thought of it like that. For you, it it might have been just a question of, well, this seems to get in the way of my freedom to enjoy pleasure. And that's the goal of life. That's the way you may have thought about it. But actually, that's the question you really have to engage with. You see, on the one hand, is this true? Your view, that there's this world where we just rot, we're here by chance, are accountable only to ourselves, where people and sexual union are nothing special and what you do doesn't matter in any grand scheme and so you should pursue what gives you pleasure. That's one way of seeing the world. But here's the other. There is a resurrection future and we're here for the Lord with purpose. A world where we're accountable to our Master Jesus, the Lord Jesus, where people are made in God's image and the marriage with sexual union, marriage with sexual union, uh, the, the marriage which sexual union serves is holy. An image of Christ and his church and what you do matters for eternity. That's the issue. Which of these is true? And you can't be honest in your dismissal of, of the Christian sexual ethic until you realise that it's integrated with the whole Christian understanding of reality, until you've actually examined its foundation, until it, you examine the truth or otherwise of the resurrection. You see, you can't sit there and condemn the Christian ethic and decline to examine the resurrection or dismiss the ethic just because you may not like the consequences, that if it's true you would need to change. That, that's actually dishonest. And we might like to think that God's not in our world and that modern man has somehow, in Sartre's words, killed God. But Easter, the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God, tells us that wanting God dead does not kill God. So if you're appalled by the Christian ethic, you need to work out whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. But maybe you're not a believer, but you've actually been attracted to what has been said tonight because you're appalled at the chaos and destruction our sexual freedom has brought. And there is a cost in our society to sexual freedom. There's growing rates of loneliness and casual sex and porn actually promote loneliness, not intimacy. There's instability of relationships, damage of children not living with biological parents. There is the difficulties with intimacy in marriage created by porn. There's the dehumanising effect of casual sex. There's all the confusion about consent and whether it can be genuine. Oh, there's the exploitation and objectification of women. There are lots of consequences to sexual freedom and maybe you recognise that. And that especially for women, casual, uncommitted sex, despite its representation in much media, is actually a con. Giving blokes exactly what they wanted, sex without commitment or consequence. Hope you recognise that. And that in the Christian gospel you see an alternative, committed permanent relationships between men and women in which children can be nurtured and where sex is the servant, not the master 
in the relationship and where men and women are committed to faithfulness. Maybe you sense the sanity of that, that in a sense it resonates with what you understand of your humanity and your longings, but you're not sure. You're not sure of its foundation, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, if that's you, if you're attracted, investigate that. Chris will be running a a course that takes us through the Gospels. You can find out about Jesus. But maybe you're not a believer and yet you're in the situation of many, grieved and hurt by sexual freedom, by recreational, uncommitted sex you realise that it actually meant more, at least to you. And you felt exposed, betrayed and used. Or maybe you've got guilt because you were the user and you knew you were speaking just to get your own way and now you feel your shame. Or perhaps too late you've realised it's enslaving power the way that porn, as some say, has come to to dominate your life and drain your time and energy and finances. Well, what I want to say to you is what the Gospel says. Jesus can bring change and he can bring forgiveness. You see that verse 11? He's just been through that list of sin, including sexually immoral people, and he says, some of you used to be like this. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Jesus is Lord. He gives these powerful spirit who can work change in your life. He can cleanse you by the sacrifice of himself. He can make you fit, unashamed, to come into the presence of the living God. He can make you, he can forgive you so that you do not fear the judgment, so that when you come before God and he looks at your life and he hears those words you may have said, he will still forgive you, justify you, welcome you into his presence. You know, I want to say that because this sexual freedom has many victims. But Jesus can give you new life. And if you want to know about that, come and talk because he can give it to you. But I also want to talk tonight to believers and that's probably the most of you. And again, I want to talk to three groups of believers. And the first group I want to talk to is somebody sitting here reckoning themselves a believer but telling themselves that what I've said doesn't apply to them that they can keep watching that porn. Oh, yes, it's only occasionally. I'm not, you know, I just do it when I'm under stress. They can keep watching it. Or they can keep pressuring their girlfriend or boyfriend into sex for all sorts of reasons, you know, because, oh, it's so loving, something like that. They can even seek out casual sex. Well, I want to warn you tonight, your sin will find you out and God cannot be mocked. Right. God is not mocked. It will reappear. Yeah, there. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, 
he will also reap because the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap destruction and the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Now, if you're sitting there and thinking, oh, this bloke's just too full on. You know, it's, uh, he's just too serious. He's just plainly too hung up. Uh, you are not listening to God, okay? He says flee from sexual immorality and you will not escape. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You sow to the flesh, you'll from the flesh reap destruction. And as uh, Paul reminds us in Thessalonians, right, each of uh, God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. And he says, God has not called us to impurity but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, you need to hear that. And you mustn't think that you are smarter or stronger than God who sees and knows everything you do. And secondly, though, I want to talk to believers who have been engaging in sexual immorality and God's actually convicted you of sin, whether it's watching porn or that premarital sex or staying up and watching those R-rated, whatever. What do you do when God convicts you of sin? Well, firstly, you repent. That means you break with it completely. You stop. That's what repentance is. It's changing your mind and changing your direction. And to break free from sexual sin, you have to want to change. And there is a big difference, isn't there, between remorse of being caught out or feeling bad or feeling guilty and repentance. A difference between the sorrow that leads to death and the sorrow that leads to life. And you can't outsource repentance to some group or your spouse or anyone else. You have to stop and then seek forgiveness because there is Forgiveness. Our Lord says people will be forgiven for all sins on whatever blasphemies they utter. That forgiveness, all sins, includes sexual sin, even if you feel it uniquely defiling. You know, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, but he found forgiveness. And you might want to read his psalm, Psalm 51, that speaks of that forgiveness. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what that which is evil in your sight. Cleanse me, he says. Cleanse me. God heard David. He will hear you. But talk. Bring it into the open with another believer. Sin thrives on the shame that keeps it in the dark. Repent, seek forgiveness, talk. Now while I'm talking to you, I, I want to talk about two other things. Firstly, guilt, and then I'm going to talk about premarital sex, okay? Now guilt in our society is seen as a great evil, but actually it's very useful if you have informed your conscience by the truth, if it turns you to God in repentance and faith. So if you're feeling guilty, 
Don't think that feeling guilty is the problem. Rather, it's actually pointing you to the solution because it's the behaviour that has made you feel guilty which is the problem. And you need to repent of that behaviour and then deal with your guilt by drawing near to God for forgiveness. And I also want to talk about sin in the context of uh, you know being engaged or talking about getting married, which is often where serious Christian people kind of get caught up in sexual sin. Because desire is strong, you may be unfamiliar with it and you have grown close and you tell yourself in your head that it's all right because you're in the context of a serious, committed relationship. Well, you are just lying to yourself, okay? If you're not married, sexual engagement with the other person is sin. Right? Hear that. And then something might happen to you. You know, you might be afraid that you're getting pregnant or, you know, brings it out into the open or or maybe your own conscience troubles you and others become aware of your sin, you know. So what do you do? Well, let me say conviction that you've been doing the wrong thing is a reason to stop sinning, but it is not a reason to get married. Let me make that clear if that's you. You'd actually have to decide to marry that other person on other grounds. In fact, sexual sin before marriage may well be a reason not to marry that person. And let me say, it is always a great way to make any subsequent marriage difficult. Why? Well, it's because we're, you know, two believers have got caught up in sexual sin before marriage. It's often because there's been pressure. The pressure, usually, let's face it, of the bloke's desire that's led to it. And that pressure may have been kept up despite objections. So it means the bloke's actually not listening to you. He's not hearing you. And that's not the basis for a good relationship, is it, where you are pressured and your views, your objections are overruled. And if you're actually engaging in sex before marriage, already you or one of you are putting your word against Jesus' word, claiming something to be right where Jesus' word says it's wrong. And there's also been a failure, if you're a professing believer, of self-control. And self-control is what you need to love each other in marriage. And all those things damage trust. So if that's you, engaging in sex before marriage and thinking then that you've got to marry them or justifying it even because you've got to, you, you justify it because you're going to marry them, well, you could be looking at someone, living with someone for the rest of your life who doesn't listen to you who doesn't listen to Jesus, who puts their will or desire above God's will and your wishes and who can't be trusted to have enough self-control to put your interests above their own, so why would you want to marry them? Or think that marriage will be anything but difficult? Believer, 
and you have heard, uh, you know. So, so I, I just throw that out there, and if you want to come and talk to us about it, come and talk to us about it. But remember, conviction of sin is a reason to stop sinning, and then you can address other questions. But mainly, thirdly, you're a believer, and you've heard God say that sex is marriage, that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman, and you're committed to living that way. Third group of believers. That's great. Be thankful. Be thankful. Don't view it as a, a great cost or a great sacrifice to live God's way. God's instruction is a gift given for your good and given to save you much grief. So don't be conned. Don't be conned by the lies of the world that uncommitted recreational sex is what you should want and desire, that sexual fulfilment is the key to your identity and happiness. The world's propaganda, yes, is constant and it's everywhere. You know, friends talking of their weekends, movies, whatever. But here it's especially true that sin gives pleasure for a season and after that, death. Following Jesus... Living his way gives you a much richer identity, a greater and eternal goal, and it gives you freedom to be and pursue so much more, to be a child of God and to pursue his good will for you. So if you're a believer and you're not caught up in sexual sin, be grateful and keep doing what God's word says because you trust the Lord Jesus. Keep fleeing. And it is flee. <coughs> Hear that now before you're really tested because it's easy to think you can resist something you don't know the power of, power of. So you might think you're free to push the boundaries when you meet the right person. No, flee. Listen to the wisdom of the Song of Songs. You see, the Song of Songs knows the delight and power of desire in the context of a committed relationship. But what does it say? Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. So set your minds on it now that you will flee sexual immorality. You see, if you want to avoid a destructive explosion, you don't light the fuse until the explosive is placed where it ought to be. Flee sexual immorality. Don't stir up or awaken love until it's time. Wait until the right time. Flee and remember who you are so you can focus on glorifying God. Temple of the Holy Spirit bought with a price. Focus on glorifying God and living in the truth of the Lord Jesus that he's become incarnate, taken on our body, conquered death in this body for us, that he is raised and he will raise us, and he has poured out his spirit and he has joined us to himself in a spiritual union, which is our life and hope and joy. So why would you do anything that would tear you apart from Christ? Be thankful for God's good teaching and live as his for him. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, what you teach in your word about how we should use the good gift 
of our sexual natures is so different from the world's. Give us such a conviction of the truth of the gospel that we embrace this teaching cheerfully and thankfully. Give us grace to say no to sexual desire, to flee sexual temptation and to say yes to living for Jesus, knowing that we are his and that we live in your presence through your spirit. And Father, we pray that our commitment to living Jesus' way would bring him honour and would be of service to others, offering them an alternative, uh, freed from harm and exploitation, offering them a life which is good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.